0: Well, greetings to all of you from those of us here in Charlotte. Uh, This is a very special day for those of you who will be viewing this message, a special fast day that Dr. Meredith had called for the church, as he often does each year. We're entering into a new chapter in man's history and also in the history of the church of God, the living church of God. The world was stunned last year with the Brexit vote. Now, those of us who are in the church understand that Britain is not going to be a part of the final beast power. And so while it was perhaps a little surprising, we weren't sure exactly how it was going to turn out, the overall effect was exactly what we have expected, that Britain would not be a part of the uh, final configuration that is uh, yet in formation. The world was equally shocked by the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States something that has truly shaken up not only this country, but the world. And we've entered into a very dangerous phase, a dangerous war between the president and the establishment. The, uh, the liberal establishment is furious. They're very upset. Uh, they would like to shut down all opposition. But uh, so far, the president, at least at the time of this recording, has been able to stand his ground But he's a very unusual individual, and whatever you think of him, uh, we have to say that something different is happening in the world, Uh, for good or for bad, but I think that in the end, we're going to see that it's not all for good. Uh, The U.S. could survive a civil war back in the 1860s, but we can't survive a civil war in the day in which we live. And we're approaching something that is close to a civil war. It may not be a shooting war as of this time, and it may never become a real shooting war, but it is a civil war nevertheless, where we have a divided nation, uh, one side with certain values and the other side with other values, and there is no possibility of compromise. And the reason is because one side, in fact, uh, is promoting behaviors that uh, we certainly couldn't support. Uh, Even this, uh, the president uh, has not come out against some of these things in the way that We would hope that he would, but uh, whichever side that we're on, we have to realize it's all politics, it's all man's way of doing things, and it's not going to end up very well in the end, and many things that are happening are going to promote the uh, coming of the end of this age. We were surrounded by oceans before. But uh, we're not today, and again, it's a very different world than it was back in the 1860s when we had the shooting civil war in this country. Europe is in, in disarray at this time. It's falling apart. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, how it's all going to turn out. Well, we know the end result of what's going to happen, but the steps along the way, we don't know exactly what will take place. But there are three significant European elections that will be held this year. In uh, March, uh, March the 15th, the Dutch are going to be electing a new leader. Uh, Gert Wilders is uh, an individual to watch. Uh, he certainly would pull the Dutch out of the European Union. In fact, perhaps other uh, individuals might do the same uh, if they are elected. Uh, following that, we have the French election on April the 23rd, and there will very likely be a runoff, and that would be May the 7th. But they're looking for a new president, and Marine Le Pen is uh, an individual who we might want to watch. Whether she gets into office or not, we don't know, but she would pull France out of the European Union. So we have two Israelite countries that are on the brink. In fact, if the uh, it was put to a vote of the people today, from what we understand, both in Holland and in France, they would pull out of the European Union. We have the German election, September the 24th looking for a new chancellor. And that's a long way away, especially in a political world. Uh, the 24th of September, just a long way away, and it's too early to know exactly what may happen there and other events, what happens in Holland, what happens in France, and other events that could take place could shape how that turns out. We have an anti-EU sentiment that is running high. I have an interesting article here from... McLean's Magazine, uh, December the 12th, 2016. And I won't read all of it, but the the title of the article is The Dawn of the Strongman Era is Here. And a key passage says from uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia to Xi Jinping in China uh, to Recep uh, Erdogan in Turkey, the world is suddenly led by what foreign policy expert uh, Gideon Ratchman calls the cult of the strong man. And of course, the whole article has to do with the election of President Trump and considering him in that same category. They admire each other even as they compete for dominance, sharing thin skins, thick egos, monumental power, massive personal wealth, and an open loathing for critics, the free press, and political opponents. So I thought that was a rather interesting statement there. Uh, it does show that we're entering a new era. Uh, we are entering a time when people are looking for solutions to what seem to be unsolvable problems. And we already have wars that are taking place in the Middle East and other places around the world. And it's just a dangerous time. On top of that, here's another article that uh, comes from uh, GermanForeignPolicy.com says, last week the liberal left government uh, critical uh, panorama television program called for launching an open debate on the German nuclear bomb. Notice that, they're talking about a German nuclear bomb. Because no state could uh, presently be confident that the USA under President Trump would unconditionally defend the other NATO allies. To deter Russia from attacking a member of the alliance in this situation, it is necessary to have national control over nuclear weapons, claimed the authors of the program. Numerous experts from think tanks, the media, and from political domain have uh, expressed similar views, even while differing on whether to confide the nu- confine the nuclear war a potential to the authority of the European Union's military bodies, or to the German government. So this is rather ominous when you think about it. It's interesting that Mr. Armstrong, even when Germany was being destroyed at the end of the Second World War and after it lay in rubbles following that, said that Germany would rise again. He proclaimed that very boldly. And not only have they risen again, but they are beginning to exert political influence and... Uh, Eventually here it looks like military influence and we know that it has to come to that because the Assyrian, Germany will challenge the U.S. again. And the U.S. and Britain, not just the U.S., but Britain, Canada, the Israelite nations are going to be overthrown because of our sins. And we're seeing this coming closer and closer. We don't know how long it will be, but it is coming on the scene. On top of all the other problems in the world... We almost certainly have this year a change in leadership in the Living Church of God. That's not something we're happy about, but it's a reality. By the time you receive this, because this is being recorded several weeks earlier, we could have that change. But if not, certainly this year is a real strong possibility that we will have a change. And, uh, you know, change, understandably so, makes people nervous. Uh, we, we're we afraid of change. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We're apprehensive about it. Now, there's no need to be, but I understand why some are apprehensive about such a change. Many of us remember what happened when Mr. Herbert Armstrong died and how the church went totally off track. I think that we can assure you that that's not going to happen again. But my saying it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you're going to accept that fact. I think that we will see in time that the church will continue on the track. Dr. Marath very early on put in place a council of elders. He was thinking very early on how to, to rightly govern the church according to the scriptures. But he recognized that there needs to be input into decisions and he highly respects the council of elders and we respect him as well. And when you hear people say negative things about what's happening in in, uh, Charlotte, and there are always those critics that are going to be out there, they simply don't know what they're talking about. Uh, We do have harmony on the council. We have ever since I've been involved in it, since, uh, what, about 1998, I think, the first time I was on it. And I remember very shortly after I was put on the council, I was eating dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Meredith and my wife and I, and uh, it was at the Feast of Tabernacles at Lake of the Ozarks, and Dr. Meredith wanted to know what I thought uh, if something should happen to him. Now, that goes back quite a few years. That was very early on when the Living Church of God started. And I don't remember the exact year, but it was uh, within uh, two or three years of uh, the time I was put on the council. And he wanted to know what I thought. And at the time, I told him that, well, there were four, what I call heavyweights on the council, and I won't make, mention names, but I'll just say that three of those men are dead. Uh, they didn't survive, uh, Dr. Meredith. And the fourth one uh, decided he wanted to start his own work when he got his feelings hurt. So <clears throat> this is uh, it's, it's changed a lot since that time. But the point I want to make is that Dr. Meredith was looking early on. He's asking questions. He is uh, checking with uh, people uh, to see what they think. And we really have to understand that ultimately, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And do we believe that or not? And that's something, again, that Dr. Meredith had emphasized so many times in the past, and I'm sure uh, always would. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he is the one that is working out events as it suits him, as it pleases him. And I feel very positive, certainly as we go forward, but the bottom line to all of this, what's happening in the world, what's happened with the church or happening in the church, uh, bottom line to all of this is that we need to stay close to God as individuals and as an organization. And the call for the fast really had nothing to do with Dr. Mara's health issues. Uh, the idea was brought up by Mr. Rod McNair in one of our executive luncheons because we realize that we need that closeness to God. We don't need a crisis to be close to God. We need to be close to God at all times. But we see that the world is in a very dangerous situation. We see that uh, there's a certain drifting of our society. And so Dr. Meredith immediately saw the wisdom in calling a fast. And he called the fast and We set the date, we sat down and talked about it, and came up with the date of March the 18th, which when you are viewing this, uh, should be March the 18th. So today we're going to look at three temptations of Christ, and lessons we can remember on this special day from those lessons, those temptations that Christ went through. I'm sure you are already thinking of where we're going, but it's Matthew the fourth chapter, We could go to Luke, the fourth chapter as well, when Christ went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. Let's read that very quickly here in Matthew 4. And we're going to see it perhaps in a way that we haven't focused on it as much in the past. At least I have never focused on it in this way. And and some of this comes from uh, commentaries. I I won't take credit for all of it, but it certainly is... uh, information that is backed up by the Scriptures. Uh, Commentaries are fine if they are backed up by Scripture, but if not, then we need to recognize they're just uh, uh, ideas of men. It says here in Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is uh, shortly after his baptism, or very quickly afterward. And when he had fasted, forty days and forty nights afterward, he was hungry. Then the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So that was the first temptation. And Jesus' response was, uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And of course, he was quoting Scripture there. So then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus countered this again. Satan quoted Scripture out of context. But Jesus countered it with other Scripture when he said, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So that was the second temptation. The third one came when, verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus did not dispute that the devil had the authority to give him those things. Whether he would have followed through, we know he's a liar, but nevertheless, Uh, I'm sure that that the devil would have given him all those things because it would have suited his purpose. He would have destroyed the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus countered, again, he said, instead of uh, uh, quoting Scripture immediately, he says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written. And then he quoted the Scripture, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And after that, the devil realized that he was defeated on that particular occasion. And so he left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. We know that that was not the end of the temptations of Christ. But this was a very special thing. And I think it's rather interesting here that Jesus was embarking on a a new part of his life. He was at the beginning stage of his ministry. And so here was something new. Uh, a new stage of ministry, and he went out and he fasted for that period of time, recognizing the importance of being close to God. Now we're going to take a a closer look at these uh, temptations, because there are those who see a connection between these temptations and 1 John 2. So let's turn over there, 1 John 2, and verses 15 through 17. And let's notice what we have here. We'll want to keep a place in, in um, that passage. Let me find something here I can stick there because we're going to come back there time and again. But in 1 John 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes... And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, it mentions three things there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We've seen that Jesus was tempted in three ways by the devil. And let's look at these a little bit more carefully. What was that first temptation that was given to uh, Jesus? Well, as we read there, Uh, He said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He was extremely hungry at that time. And I think that all of us would think that, wow, if you were that hungry, 40 days without food, and you had the power to turn a rock into bread, uh, it would seem like something that would seem like the thing to do, especially when you've got somebody encouraging you to do it. But Jesus knew where that temptation came from. He knew that that was not the one that he was going to obey. There was nothing wrong with him turning anything into bread for that matter. We have the feeding of the the 4,000 and the 7,000. We have the, the, you know, with just a few loaves of, of bread. And so we know that Christ could magnify that in some way, but he wasn't going to obey the devil. He was not going to fall prey to the desire, an unlawful desire. to to follow what the devil said. And that would have been a form of lust, the lust of the flesh, the physical flesh crying out for something and falling prey to it or giving into it. When we look at the second one, the second one that's listed back there in 1 John 2, it says the lust of the eyes. Now this is a little bit more difficult to uh, make the comparison, but I think that we'll see that there is a comparison here. Uh, between the two. Because the second temptation was that he said that, I mean, he took him up onto a, a high pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down because the angels will hold you up. They will, they will spare you. There's a, a miracle that will occur. You don't have to worry about dying, falling on the bottom because they'll, they'll spare you. Look for this miracle. See it with your own eyes, so to speak. And we'll see why I, I say that here in a few minutes. But that was the second temptation. What was the third one? Well, the third one, as we go back there, and the pride of life. And what was that third temptation that was given to Christ? Well, he was told that all of these kingdoms will be yours. Now, he was also tempted on pride when the devil in all, in all three of these temptations in reality were affecting his pride or uh, trying to appeal to pride, his vanity, if you are the Son of God. But here the devil made a a direct pitch to fall down and worship me and I will give you all these things. I will give you power. I will give you wealth. I will give you celebrity status. I will give you all these things that so many people on earth today want. And he knew, Satan knew human nature. He knew that he could influence the average person out there. And he was hoping he'd influence the Son of God. But he failed in that as well. Now, others see a connection between this event, these these temptations, and the exodus. And this one is a very strong connection, as we shall see. Uh, The first one again, a man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where did Christ come with that scripture? Where, Where did he find that scripture? Where did it come from? Well, it's back in the eighth chapter, Deuteronomy 8, and we'll look at verse 3. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. So he humbled humbled you. This is God speaking uh, through Moses to the uh, children of Israel. Allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But by, uh, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the eternal. So it, it's interesting here uh, that he allowed them to go through the wilderness. In fact, let's go back to verse 2. He says, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all that way, uh, all the way, these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. 40 years to humble them and test them. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, and then it shows that he humbled them and allowed them to go hungry at least uh, to a certain degree, but then he fed them with manna that they might know that man should not live by bread alone. I think we can begin to see a strong connection there with the forty years in the wilderness of tempting. here we are testing here we have uh, Jesus being tested for 40 days and 40 nights as he fasted during that same period of time or the day for a year period of time, as it were. Uh, and then we see the connection between not living by bread alone because they had the manna that was given to them. They didn't have all the things they wanted, but they had that. But God tested them before he gave them the manna. He tried them to see what was in their heart. Now, when we have the second temptation, which was to throw yourself down and the angels of heaven will hold you up, uh, Jesus quoted another scripture. Let's notice again, back in Matthew, the fourth chapter, it says, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, where did Jesus get that scripture? Well, again, back in the book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. And let's notice that in verse 16. It says, You shall not tempt the eternal Your God as you tempted Him in Massa. As He tempted Him in Massa. And we'll look at that a little bit in more detail uh, in a few minutes. But uh, for right now, we're just kind of getting this overview. And then we'll look at that in greater detail. But notice it says, As you tempted Him in Massa. So they were not to tempt God in that way. And we'll see the connection between that and the, the throwing down or the lust of the eyes in a few minutes. The third one was to worship me, worship, uh, and Christ countered by saying that he was only to worship or we are only to worship God. He got that from this same chapter, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. It says, you shall fear the eternal your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. In other words, you rely on God, not on anyone else. You should fear God only there. And in the 10th chapter, we also find that, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20, it says, you shall fear the eternal your God. You shall serve Him. And in Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. So very clearly, this is where Christ is quoting from. He's quoting right here from the book of Deuteronomy. And it, it all had to do with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Forty years, forty days of fasting. Uh, being tempted when it came to hunger. And Christ was tempted when it came to hunger. Turning bread or manna uh, that God gave them. The devil telling me he the, uh, should turn the stones into loaves of bread. And then uh, we have the... Uh, uh, the uh, lust of the eyes, which we'll look at here in just a minute, and then the, the pride of life and showing that we are to serve God only. So we see a, a direct connection there. So let's look at each one of these temptations uh, in, in a little bit more detail. The first one has to do with physical appetites, uh, the, 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 the stomach, you might say. And right now, if you're fasting, you're probably a little bit hungry. And our desire when we get hungry is to eat. A little child when he's hungry will cry out. He wants, you know, milk. He wants something to eat right now. And as we grow as children, we still get grumpy when we don't have something to eat. And even as adults when we don't have something to eat, we might become a little bit grumpy because the wife hasn't gotten it in time or we haven't stopped the car in time for breakfast. Any number of things that can happen there, we get a little bit of grumpy, a bit grumpy when we get hungry, and that 's just the way that, that life is. but God wants us to control that appetite and He wants us to control all of our appetites and when we speak of appetites, we not only have appetites for food but also appetites for other things, sexual appetites uh, appetites for various substances that can be abused, whether it be alcohol or drugs, uh, eating too much. You know, it's not wrong to eat, but we can become gluttons. And not all gluttons are overweight. You can have skinny gluttons too. I know when I grew up, I ate far more than I needed to, and I didn't have to worry about it when I was much younger. I do worry about it a little bit now, but it took me many, many years before I could put on weight if I wanted to. So you can be a skinny glutton as well as an overweight glutton. But let's notice Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. And these are things that we should be evaluating ourselves on because fasting is not just to go hungry. It's not to twist God's arm somehow and say, well, God, look at me. Look what I'm doing for you. So you've got to do something for me. No, fasting is about humbling ourselves. It's about self-examination. It's about exploring where our faults are, where our shortcomings are, and crying out to God that He will give us the strength to overcome them, and that we'll have the strength to be able to grow truly in spiritual character. Here in Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, in verse 19, this was advice. To Solomon's son, he said, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe the man with rags. This scripture really came home to me one time. I'd read it a number of times, but it says mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. And, uh, you know, it says meat, I suppose, could be more than just uh, physical flesh. But I remember visiting uh, what we would call a go-to today, someplace here in the Carolinas. I don't remember exactly. I think it was in South Carolina, but I could be wrong on that. And this fellow took us out back, and he had this huge, huge barbecue. And he'd have these parties where all of his friends would come over, and they would just gorge themselves on meat. I I'd never seen anything like that before. But there are people like that. They just gorge themselves on meat and drink. They'd have big parties. And this was a this was not your typical backyard barbecue. It was probably eight feet long or more and four feet wide and big grill and and they'd have big parties there. And basically just eat meat and drink. Uh it was kind of interesting there. But there is moderation that we need to exercise in everything that we do. You know, and I I find that if I have a a drink in the evening, uh, that oftentimes I will get tired, want to take a nap. And I'm not talking about over-drinking, I'm just talking about a glass of wine or something. That used to not be the case when I was younger, but I find as I've gotten older that I may want to take a nap afterward or just not off on the couch. But, uh, you know, too much of that, too much eating, too much drinking can bring drowsiness upon us. There is a, a, a warning here about the proper use of these things. It's not wrong to eat meat. It's not wrong to have a glass of wine or a beer or something. But uh, we need to be very cautious, very careful. And that's something that each one of us, uh, if we do indulge in any of those things, need to monitor for ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, am I controlling my physical appetites? Am I controlling what I eat? The kind of foods that I eat. There are foods that just aren't good for us. The the, overly uh, sweet things were just uh, large volumes of sweets. You go into a, a restaurant these days, especially the kind where you serve yourself, it's all you can eat, buffets. And I think a lot of us like those things. Some people don't. But a lot of older people, especially like those all-you-can-eat buffets, it's a good bargain for their, their money. But have you ever noticed that people just heap their plates up real high? And then they get to the dessert, and they don't take a little dessert plate. They take the big dinner plate and heap that up. And then they might even go back for seconds. Now, these things are not good for the physical body. Uh, is not good for our character. We need to exercise control and recognize that all things are good in moderation. I say all things. I, I think you understand that uh, I'm speaking of all things that are good are good in moderation, but not everything should be, be eaten And uh, as God's Word shows us. And even what we do eat, we need to eat in moderation. Even honey is something that the Bible says that uh, We should eat a little honey and not overindulge in that. In Revelation, the 21st chapter, Revelation 21 and verse 8, very familiar scripture. We've read this a number of times, uh, even in recent times. It speaks of overcoming in verse 7, and those who overcome will inherit all things. And I think that that's something we always have to keep our minds on is what it is that we are looking forward to, what it is that we're going to inherit if we are patient. But there are those who are not going to inherit all things, and they are the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, there are several things here that we want to look at. You know, murderers are people who cannot control their, their anger. They're, uh, people murder for different reasons, but anger is certainly a prime cause of it. Uh, others, I guess, just for the fun of it, we have people like that in society, which is hard to, to comprehend, but they're so twisted that they'll do things like that. But in other words, they have no control over their emotions, their appetites, but sexually immoral individuals. And sexual desire is a lust of the flesh, we might say. And so this is one of those things that, you know, even Christ was a sexual being in the sense that he was a male. He had the same hormones that everybody else has, but he controlled his sexual desires. Too many people in today's world don't. And it's not just today's world, because you can go back in time to the first century I've been to Pompeii, and I haven't seen all the the museum uh, portion of it that shows all of the the, the sexual uh, lust and uh, depravity that existed in that city. But the Apostle Paul landed not far from there on his way to Rome. And here was a city that was a major city at that time that was destroyed by uh, the volcano. I believe it was Vesuvius uh, that uh, destroyed the city. And was it Pliny the Elder, I think, died there? The number of famous people that died in that city. But it was given over to sexual vice, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were. And we live in an age today where that's that's our age. It's very different from earlier ages, although this has always been a problem, that people do not control their sexual desires. They don't control their uh, hunger, their their appetites that way. And it also mentions here sorcerers. And the word sorcerer in this particular case comes from the word where, that we get pharmakeia or pharmacy. It's the same derivation. There are three words that are used in the New Testament to describe uh, sorcery or witchcraft and, and it has to do with all three of them are basically the same word. Uh, they're just slight difference at the end of them but it comes from the word that we translate pharmacy. Now, there was a time when we may have thought that we shouldn't take drugs if a doctor gives us drugs, but uh, I don't think that that is at all what it's talking about here. When we look at our age today, we can now see why this, this particular term would be used because there's a tremendous appetite in our Western world for what we call recreational drugs. We, we see state after state legalizing marijuana. And some people say, what's the difference between that and alcohol? Well, alcohol can have uh, some food value. Now, there may be a medical use for marijuana. I'm not saying that there isn't, but it's not in the smoked form. Uh, At least most doctors would say that. And, you know, when people smoke marijuana, it's very, very harmful to their lungs, to their bodies. And, you know, it's it's a, a gateway to other drugs. And we have a huge drug problem in our society. And sadly, there are even young people in the church that are curious about these things and and want to try them out. And we can all understand the curiosity, but we also have to understand that we can't allow ourselves to give in to those temptations because those temptations can have a very bad effect on our lives. And for a few moments of whatever it is that one wants, uh, it can mean a lifetime of sorrow or even death. So we have to recognize that that that's a part of the problem here. But all these things that it mentions here, uh, especially, uh, you know, murder sexually immoral, sorcery, uh, those things are lusts of the flesh. Not everything in here, but uh, many things are. Uh, let's notice first Corinthians the sixth chapter that there are certain vices that uh, need to be avoided. He says in verse nine, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. Or revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Now notice how many of those have to do with the lust of the flesh. Uh, we have, you know, adultery, fornication, homosexuals, sodomites, covetous drunkards. All that has to do with the lust of the flesh. And so if if Satan was able to at least tempt, he was never able to persuade Christ to sin. But Satan went after Christ with the appetites of the flesh. In particular, it was hunger in that, that case because he was so hungry. We should not think that he wasn't tempted in other, at other times in other ways, with other appetites, because he was tempted in all points as we are. In other words, all basic categories of sin, just as we are. Not every single sin that could be committed, but all the categories of sin. He was tempted when it came to food. He was tempted, no doubt sexually, in one way or another. We don't read of that exactly, but we can just imagine being a human being that he had to control. We know he had to control that desire just as anybody else does. So he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, we have the the works of the flesh, he says now the works of the flesh verse 19 galatians 5:19 the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery again that's the lust of the flesh fornication same comment uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery there's that word again hatred contentions jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions and so forth envy murder drunkenness mentioned in verse 21 the lust of the flesh these are things that we have to fight against. These are things that we must control. Now, what about the fact that he was taken up on the pinnacle of of the temple there and uh, attempted to throw himself down so that the angels could hold him up? How does that relate to the lust of the eyes? Uh, Because that seems like a bit of a stretch on the surface. Well, let's go back to Exodus the 17th chapter, Exodus 17. Because this is the, the, uh, case that is, is referred to, that Christ referred to when he said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God, as in, you know, the, uh, the time at Massa. And here, In verse 1, it says, "...then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord?" Now Moses understood very clearly that it was not him that they were going after; they were they were tempting God. They were they were questioning God's ability to provide for them. They'd already seen the the Red Sea open up. They'd seen the the death of the firstborn. Uh, they they'd seen all the miracles that were performed, the plagues that came on Egypt, and this a very short time afterward, and. Now they're questioning whether God can provide water for them. And they thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do this with this people? I mean, He was totally frustrated. He didn't know what to do. What do I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Eternal said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And it says, And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He did it in plain sight of everyone who was there. So they called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. And these words mean uh, tempted and contention or contention and tested. This was the, the case where uh, the, the scriptures there in Deuteronomy are referring back to this time. So, in other words, the the situation here was they were questioning God's ability and saying, we want to see you you know, bring forth water for us. We want, we want water, we're thirsty, we need it. We don't think you can provide it or we question whether you will provide water for us. And it was very contentious there. You can only imagine with a, a large group of people like that how contentious that could have been. And so he said this was called Massa and Meribah or contention and testing. And that's the the, the case that was there. So it had to do, when you speak of throwing yourself down, when Lucifer or Satan, the devil, told Jesus, cast yourself off and and see, watch and see how they will hold you up. In other words, it had to do as a certain connection there with that, uh, with, with this situation here and with Christ and the scripture that he quoted for them. We are not to tempt Christ, or tempt God. Notice over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9. It says, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. Actually, the verse before speaks of the physical appetites. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor be complainers, and so forth. Uh, So we see that we have to be careful that we do not tempt Christ. You know, there's one thing to uh, to to uh, test God in a, a certain way. There's a right way to test God, and there's a wrong way to test God. There are people sometimes who are angry with God because they haven't gotten what they wanted. Now, I understand that. I think it's easy at times to be angry with God. I say at times I haven't Felt that in a long, long time. But when certain things happen in life, it's easy to allow that to happen for a short period of time. But you have to get control over that. And you have to look at the big picture and see that that God is working things out. The children of Israel did not trust God. And so they contended with Him. They said, "We we want this now. And we want you to provide it. We want to be able to see that you truly are with us even though he had been with them all the way through the time they were in Egypt and bringing them out. But sometimes people get angry with God and they hold that anger for a long time and it is so destructive uh, toward them. And the same thing being angry toward anybody, but especially toward God. We have to be careful of it. You know, God will give us help when we test him properly. Now what do I mean by test him properly? Well, let's go to Malachi, the third chapter, in verse 10. It says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. Try me, or test me in this. Now, there's a difference between this and what the children of Israel did. And what is exactly that difference? Well, God says, You obey me, You test me by obeying me. You do what I tell you to do and see if I don't back you up. See if I don't help you out. But the children of Israel didn't trust God. They were telling him he had to, he had to be the one to do it first. And yet Christ says, step out on faith, do these things, and then you will see. It doesn't take faith if God does it for us beforehand. He says, test me or try me. There's a a huge difference between that kind of testing God and the kind that we see the children of Israel in the way that they were testing God. So we, we test or try God by stepping out in faith. That's a positive thing. We step out and God says, do something. So we say, okay, if I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath, I'm going to keep the Sabbath, even though my employer says he's going to fire me. And sure enough, you keep the Sabbath and the employer does fire you but you find out that God will take care of you. He will give you a better job. He'll work something out. There may be lessons that need to be learned. I'm reminded of a a man who actually, you know, tested God in this way. He gave this speech in a spokesman's club, so I have no qualms about giving it here. I won't mention names, but he'll know who it is, and there'll be people in the club that know. And you'll forgive me if I don't have every fact exactly right, but the bottom line was that he left the church during the difficult time of worldwide and splitting up and lost a job and for two years couldn't get a job. In fact, he couldn't even get anybody to reply to his, his requests. He sent out resumes everywhere, but nobody would even reply to him. He couldn't even get a phone call for two years. But during that two years, he was reworking his spiritual life. He was proving things once again. God was allowing him time away from work so that he could learn where he should be, so that he could get back on track. God loved him. God doesn't just abandon everybody every time they, they leave. He, you know, he, he works with us, and sometimes we respond and sometimes we don't. But in this particular case, God took something away from him, his, his work. But he was giving him something far greater. And we might say, well, you know, God, give me a job or else. But he didn't really do that. He finally had some sort of a small check. I don't know if it was unemployment or whatever it was. But he realized he needed to get back to God. And so he gave a tithe on that small check. And he got on his knees and he prayed to God. And he said, now, God, I've done my part. What are you going to do? Now, I'm sure he said that respectfully. I have no idea exactly the way that it was stated. But within, it was either 24 or 48 hours, he had four good job offers, four. And up to that time, for two years, he couldn't get anything. You know, God knows what is best for us. He knows if he's going to try us for a few days without water, that he's going to build something in us. If he sees that we truly do... Trust in him, and we continue to trust in him, he will intervene for us. He will take care of us. You know, Jesus set us the example in suffering temptation. Uh, Hebrews, the second chapter, and verse 18. Hebrews 2, and verse 18. <clears throat> says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted or tested, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He's gone through all these temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's experienced all that before us. And so he understands what he is telling us we must do. He's telling us we must also resist those temptations. Notice over in Hebrews, a fourth chapter, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He went through those temptations to pave the way for us, to show us that with the help of God, with God's Spirit in us, we can overcome these temptations. We fall many times, we know that but we can overcome these things in the end. The third temptation involved pride, power, office, and fame. And we see this very often in the church of God. Uh, it, It crops up from time to time. It isn't necessarily involving everybody. But we always see that there are individuals who do not want to wait on God, but who want to do it their way on their time schedule. You know, Satan challenged Jesus whether he, he was who he was. And he said, you know, if you are the Son of God. And, and Jesus could have said, well, I'll show you. But he didn't. He understood the tactic that was being used against him. When Satan then, or the devil said, I'll give you all these kingdoms, that's never disputed. Jesus never disputed that he didn't have that authority. He didn't say, you can't do that because you don't have that authority. No, he just said that there's one that he's going to worship and that we should worship and that he should worship uh, and and no one else. You know, pride and the desire for office, for power, for celebrity status is a powerful force in human nature. In Proverbs 11 and verse 2, Proverbs 11 verse 2, it says here, when pride comes, then comes shame but with the humble is wisdom. There have been so many times over the years that I wish that certain individuals could understand that. Because most things I think that we really want in life, God will give us if we're willing to do it on His time schedule and if it's what is going to be good for us. You know, the person who wants to be a, a singer and has no talent whatsoever... God is not necessarily going to give that to you because that's not a gift that He has given to you by birth. You know, some people just don't have that gift. Most people have to work on it, but some people are never going to be a singer, just like some people are never going to be the world's fastest man or fastest woman. Uh, some, some people run fast, some people can't. And no matter how hard you work, there, most of us, it's, it's just not going to happen. We don't have that. But God is going to give those things to us that are good for us if we're willing to wait for them. If it's within His, His plan and His purpose. Notice over in the 13th chapter and verse 10. says, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Now, the devil was full of pride. We can read in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, how uh, he wanted to leave his first estate, he he wanted to overthrow God. You know, I will be this, I will be that, I will be. As we we're all familiar with those scriptures, and I'm not going to turn over to them for the sake of time. But Satan was filled with himself, and he stirred up those around him so that he could knock God off His throne or try to, which he failed because he wanted it and he wanted it right now. And he is willing to put that in us as individuals, to think that we've been passed over, that we deserve something that we shouldn't have. I, I've seen it for little things like a, a spokesman's club office, oftentimes president. I should have been made president. Or you have people fighting over who can hand out hymn books or who can plug in the coffee maker. The coffee pot wars, we've the famous ones that we've heard about. All these things, it's it's involving pride, it's involving power. What what power is there to be able to hand out a songbook? Is that such a great, great thing that I should be able to do that? Or you took my job away from me. It's something that ministers have to deal with all the time. When you shuffle jobs around, you find that people get their feelings hurt. I remember one man that, Uh, He was the only individual that was a baptized member in a particular congregation, so he was given a lot of duties. But then when other people came along and we wanted to train others and give others the opportunity, take one thing away, and he got his feelings hurt and, and eventually left the church over it. Felt deprived because he didn't get to do all the things. He felt like he couldn't share that with someone else. You know, Satan knew what he was doing when he uh tempted Christ because had he been any ordinary man, he probably would have fallen for it. All the prestige, all the power, uh, all the things that one could have. In James, the fourth chapter, James 4, it's uh, pretty interesting here because he's writing to the people of God, but he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Verse 1, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. And then he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The motivation is wrong. He says, "'Adulterers and adulteresses, "'do you not know that friendship with the world "'is enmity with God? "'Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world "'makes himself an enemy of God. "'Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain "'the Spirit who dwells in you uh, dwells in us yearns jealously? "'But he gives more grace. "'Therefore he says, "'God resists the proud, "'but gives grace to the humble.'" Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, we see there that humility, uh, when it's lacking, when we get filled with pride, everything goes wrong, it doesn't work out. yet God wants to give us so much. He wants to share the whole universe with us. And what can we possibly have on this earth right now that is all that important? If we're passed over for this or for that responsibility, so what? What we're going to have in the kingdom of God is so much greater than anything we can have on this earth. You know, you think about coming to the end of life. And I I think so much more of this as I get older. But a person goes to sleep. And it's not even an instant. Well, I would call it an instant for lack of anything else. In an instant, you'll be in the resurrection. As far as you know, a thousand years could go by, but you're not going to know it. I'm not going to know it all that we have to know is that as soon as I go to sleep, boom, the next thing I'll know is the kingdom of God. And hearing Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant, here's what I'm going to give you. And God is going to give every single one of us far more than we could possibly have right now in this life. And so it's it's so important that we always keep things in perspective. If someone came along to you and said, today, you know, I'll give you $10 million if you'll just do thus and such. Just break the Sabbath one time. Just work an hour on the Sabbath. I'll give you $10 million. We can all say, I'd never do that. Well, I think that there are some who would do that. And it might surprise all of us who wouldn't, who wouldn't. The temptation of power, of glory, of uh, office, of fame, celebrity status. It's a very powerful influence on mankind. It brought Satan down. And Psalm 75, Psalm 75, something that we heard a lot at Ambassador College because you had a lot of young fellows there, with a lot of uh, get up and go, and a lot of desire to to prove themselves in various ways. And so this was a scripture that was often brought out because we needed to keep things in check. It says here in verse 4, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked do not lift up the horn. Horns being a symbol of strength. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Don't be stiff-necked. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is the judge. And Jesus understood that. He knew that, yes, he had some difficult things to go through in the physical life, but he wasn't about to give up what he had with the Father just for a short time of fame and glory on this earth that that the devil could have given to him immediately. But he knew that that was not the right way to go. And so he trusted in God always. You know, God must always be first. In Exodus, the 20th chapter, it begins the Ten Commandments with a statement that I think we often read right over, but it's so important because it sets a stage for everything else. Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he gets into the the commandments. But this is a part of the commandments in that sense. It is God that is the authority. He is the one that we are to worship. The one that we are to, you know, give our whole heart to. Notice over in Matthew, the 19th chapter, Matthew 19 and verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he wanted eternal life. That's what you and I want. That's what we hope for. That's the reason for our being, the reason for us being here. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. That sounds simple enough. It sounds simple enough for him. And he said to him, Well, which ones? And so he listed several of the commandments here. And then verse 20, The young man said to him, Well, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And then some people think that Jesus gave him an 11th commandment when he didn't at all. He went back to the very first commandment and the 10th commandment. having no other gods before the true God and not coveting. And so he says here, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Great possessions. You know, if you don't have much Sometimes it's easy to give it up. If you have a lot, you just don't want to. I've found that people that have very little sometimes are far more generous than the people who have much more. Surprising. But it is that way. And I, I, I'm not condemning one over the other. It's just it's human nature. And maybe that poor man, if he had what the rich man had, would be in the same boat. But in this particular case, this man wanted eternal life. He wanted what you say you want, what I say I want. But was he willing to give up his God? You know, that's a hard thing to know. What is your God in a physical sense? What is it? Is it social media? Is it television? Is it, you know, uh, too much drink? What is it? Is it something that keeps you from your relationship with God, or if it is something that keeps you from your relationship with God, it's a false God. It is a God before the true God. Over in Luke, the 14th chapter, Luke 14, I've given this before and I've said so many times, It's, I think it's one of the most, I don't know, frightening is not exactly the word, but the the most sobering scriptures in the entirety of the Bible. Here he says in verse 26, Luke 14:26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, meaning love to a lesser degree by comparison, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Christ is not going to settle for being number two, nor God. God the Father and Jesus Christ must be first in our lives. The purpose for fasting is not to pat ourselves on the back and tell, us, tell ourselves how righteous we are because we went without food and water for a period of time. The purpose of fasting is to humble ourselves to take our eye off of what the other fellow is doing and look in the mirror and say, what am I doing that's wrong? What do I need to change? God, forgive me for whatever it is that is holding me back from serving you more. And it takes time to, to come to that, the weakness of going without food and water. We finally come to the place where we recognize that you know, I'm really not that big. I'm not that great. You take off my food and my water for a short period of time and, you know, what am I? I'm nothing. And that's what God wants us to recognize. But He also wants us to recognize that He's holding out for us a reward that is far beyond anything our minds can comprehend. He holds that out for us. You know, sometimes, I've made the statement before that apart from God, uh, you know, I, I'm no more than uh, you know the bacteria on the bottom of of my shoe. That's all I'm worth. But that can be taken out of context and has been taken out of context. The fact that God has created us, that God has given us life, and that God is calling to us to a wonderful purpose, and especially. To be a part of the first fruits means that there is something significant about you and me. There is something important. There's something important because we are important to God to be His very children. So, in that sense, there is great value in every single human being that God is calling and working with, and eventually it will be all. So, while we need to see ourselves, of and by ourselves, as nothing, we need to understand the great value that God has placed in each one of us. And he loves us. And we're just like little children to him. And he, I, I imagine he is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for the time when he's going to resurrect us and be able to look us in the eye face to face and us see him. He must be looking forward to that far more than we are because he really knows what's coming. To a greater degree. He knows what he's going to give us. So brethren, fasting is important. It's important that we keep our feet on the ground. When Jesus went out began his ministry, you might say, uh, he saw a period of time that he needed to be exceptionally close to God and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. We should not try that, by the way. Uh, I don't think any one of us would make it even close to that. But nevertheless, he fasted and he drew near to God And although he was physically weak, he was spiritually strong. And when we are physically weak, we can be spiritually strong if we approach fasting from the right perspective. We're truly living in very dangerous times. We're going into a new phase in mankind's history. I think it's very clear that everything is not just the way it has been for a number of years. Things, there's always change, but this is a big change that's taking place in our world today. We're having a change in the church this year, one way or the other. I, I assume it's this year, but we don't know. I'm not trying to predict anything. I'm just saying that I, I just know that the facts of the way things are, and unless God intervenes, there's going to be a change in leadership, and may have already been. But that can be frightening to people, but nevertheless, we need to recognize that Jesus Christ is with us. He is the head of the church. He is going to work things out. And He may not work it out the way that you or I want it to be worked out, but He's going to work it out. And if we are willing to submit and to work under His direction, His guidance, it's going to work out well for us all in the end. We're going to be tested in ways that we cannot imagine in the future. But we must seek the eternal, our God, with all of our heart. Don't wait until the Day of Atonement or until the next time when a fast is called by the church, but especially now as we approach the Passover season, let us humble ourselves as Jesus did and seek God with all our hearts.